0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP Faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. We all know the old idiom, easy come, easy go. This saying has been used informally in nearly every situation. Well, nearly every situation it applies to since the 1800s. I mean, can you imagine if we just used this in every situation? I'm so nervous to give this speech. Ah, you know what they say, easy come, easy go. Oh, this is so easy. Oh, it sure is. This is easy. Come, easy. Go. See, that just doesn't work. Why would you think that we can just apply it to everything? That's, that's silly. Anyway, anyway, we generally look at the gaining of freedom as a hard-fought process that results in specifically defined ends that can then no longer be taken away. Turns out it might be more of Well, maybe hard-come, easy-go. And I do mean go. On today's episode, first we're going to address a very messy, but a very tender subject, and then we'll discuss a hard-fought freedom that paradoxically looks very simplistic. And don't forget, goal update number nine after the bumper. So, take a moment, go outside, get a very good understanding of which leaves in your yard or general area are considered poisonous, and which are considered safe. You may also want to test for edge and point sharpness to... Just be sure, and then sit back and learn a little more about something worth fighting for. So as I say, easy come, easy here we go. Here's my suggestion. Save all those old t-shirts, the old holy socks, cotton underwear, and trust me, you'll be going through a lot of underwear, so keep the old ones. I'd probably suggest skipping anything spandexy, anything silky is probably also a no-go, and definitely skip the, uh, the jean material. Oh, and you may want to stop by your local Costco or Sam's if that's more your style and get a pallet full of cases of desitin. See, found, uh, well, it's really, it's found all over the place right now, but we'll land on Popside.com for now. Headline, toilet paper may be a major source of forever chemicals in wastewater. Now, I think we can all agree if that's true, even if we think it might be true, even if someone somewhere feels that's true and accusingly looks at you as you're hunched-over wad of paper in hand, saying, How dare you! If any of those scenarios are even close to true, it's time to get rid of this planet-killing, human-mutating, deadly toilet paper. Like I said, you'll, you'll want to start saving supplies, being careful to avoid slippery materials that'll just kind of move stuff around and definitely... Get rid of the rough gene or, I don't know, what are dungarees made of? Some sort of sandpaper, right? Get rid of that material also. Avoid all of that. So the byline of this article pretty much sums it up. Quote, PFAs are everywhere, even in your bathroom. Well, if they're everywhere, we're we're toast anyway. So how about we don't take any immediate action on the TP? What do you say? Let's do a little background work here. This podcast is meant to look at what you're being shoveled by the general media with a Christian worldview, but we can also do some fact-finding, some public service announcements, and maybe some explanation about all of the buzzwords and acronyms being thrown at us every single day. The buzzword, or buzz phrase forever chemicals, is being thrown around a lot. At the same time, we're being told that every chemical that does anything will last forever and kill you and beat your children and drain your bank account and crack the world in half. And maybe they will. I don't know. But for the same reason I don't know, neither do they. They, being the environmental scientists, that are assuming from the very small bit of data they have that they know everything. And time and time again, we learn that no, we actually know almost nothing. And it appears that God is maybe one or two billion steps ahead of us. Now, remember the Deepwater Horizon oil well blowout? How long did it just spew crude oil into the ocean? Do you remember? Well, it was about 13 years ago. It pumped crude for 89 days. It doesn't seem like it was that long. Three months, 89 days, and it dumped 4.9 million barrels of oil and 250,000 metric tons of natural gas into the Gulf of Mexico. Remember the environmentalists just losing their minds? I mean, this was going to destroy the water, the ecosystem, the coral. I don't know, is there coral in the Gulf? Fish life, bird life. It was going to murder dolphins, you know, the cute ones that love children. And it was going to be literal violence against greenies for centuries to come. Life would never be the same. Now, after that environmental catastrophe, every environmental agency that had a boat or a floating oil pig swooped in to try to limit the global destruction. It's estimated that about half of the oil was removed using the various methods employed by the Homo sapiens sapiens. But today, if I've done my maths right, not hundreds of years later, the other 50% of the spill is cleaned up. Well, how? It's because God designed a certain type of water-dwelling microbe that just loves oil you know the hydrocarbons and those little suckers which are generally small communities sniff out their favorite snack make their way on over there and pretty much just eat and make baby microbes i mean it kind of sounds fantastic am i right (laughs) then as the food source dwindles the entire community dies off also dwindling down to what can be supported by the food source and then and hold on to your butts here other creatures just love to eat those little dead microbes So they come along and clean up this massive microbial bloom, and eventually, I guess, everything just turns into poo. Now, what about all of the styrofoam that was going to sit in landfills for millennia, just destroying the planet? Now, we had to get rid of all of the burger clamshells, remember those things? The cups, the plates, everything, because using styrofoam was the most evil thing you could possibly ever do. Well, in 2006, real science, not the environmental kind, which mostly consists of panic and tears, discover that Pseudomonas putida, that was said probably completely wrong and I don't care enough to look it up, it's a type of bacteria, well it just loves pure styrene oil, which is what you get when you superheat styrofoam to 520 degrees Celsius, which is about 968 degrees American in the absence of oxygen. And not only do they love it, they actually, by the process of them eating it, turn it into a useful, biodegradable plastic. But Dan, you cry, like an environmental scientist. What kind of destruction to the planet are you doing by using all that energy, superheating the styrofoam? Oh, well, touche. But then in 2015, once again, real science discovered that they could breed and raise mealworms strictly on a diet of styrofoam, just, just styrofoam, non-heated, super or otherwise. They just love it, thrive on it because they have a bacteria in their gut that breaks it down. When they digest the tasty, tasty foam, they leave behind about 50% of the styrofoam as CO2. I know, greenhouse gases, planetary heat death. But remember, I like to deal in real science, not the fake, screeching, panicky environmental kind. So 50% CO2 and 50% non-toxic waste. You and I would call this worm toots and worm poo. Basically, this sounds like styrofoam is the Taco Bell of the mealworm world. (laughs) Now, how could this possibly be? Well... Rewind a few minutes to, uh, to hear my answer about God being pretty smart. Now, are you getting the idea that uh, professing ourselves to be wise, we become fools just over and over again? Don't get me wrong. I believe that through scientific inquiry, we can know a lot of stuff for very near certainty with a very high degree of confidence. But that's up to God to reveal it to us, and that's up to us to work through legitimate science to discount all other possibilities, at least to the best of our ability. Now, what the climate and environmental quasi-scientists do is grab a dash of science, a pinch of research, and sprinkle that into a massive bubbling cauldron of fear and panic, and then, to top it off, stir in a healthy amount of arrogance and count on the ignorance of the masses to get the American and or global population to drink it down to the dregs. So, anytime anyone vomits out a phrase like, forever chemicals, you gotta stop and ask, how do they know? And if you actually ask someone, point out the Deepwater Horizon disaster and the catastrophe of styrofoam. Let them chew on that with the same ferocity the microbes and mealworms chew on their tasty snacks. But let's get back to the end of toilet paper as we know it, shall we? The forever chemicals in question are termed PAFAS or PFAs, I'm not sure, as I said before, the full chemical name being per and polyfluoroalkyls. These are literally everywhere, which is what's causing the headache here, I guess. A short list of where we find these PFAs is grease-resistant paper, like fast food wrappers, microwave popcorn bags, pizza boxes, and candy wrappers. Also plastic bottles and nonstick cookware and cleaning products. Stain-resistant coatings for carpets or upholstery, stain-resistant or water-resistant clothing, camping tents, automotive fuel lines, seals and batteries, aerospace wiring, and cosmetics. Also, semiconductors, catheters, stents, transdermal patches, and medical needles, prescription medication, solar panels, windmills, and fuel cells, (laughs) among others. And they're found in the air, the soil, drinking water, your blood, and and your urine. But that's all, except for the products and locations I didn't mention. There are over 9,000 products that contain PFAs, apparently. And now that we know that they're in pretty much everything that we have or use or think about and that we're actually uh, literally, I guess at this point, hybrid human and forever chemical beings, what do these things actually do? Well, I'm glad you asked. They're associated with, and note the language because words matter, low birth weight, high cholesterol, thyroid disease, certain cancers such as liver, immune system effects, and low sperm count. But that's only if you're a male, not identify as male, actually a biological male. And it's sad I feel I have to put that in here. So here's my first comment. If these chemicals are in pretty much everything and pretty much everywhere, couldn't we just say that they're associated with literally everything? Like, if I get a cold, well, technically... That's associated with forever chemicals, because it's impossible for it not to be. If I get a hangnail, stub a toe, fail a test, get reprimanded by my boss, get a speeding ticket, win the lottery, think a thought, or literally anything else, isn't all of that associated with forever chemicals? Because they're everywhere. See, this is why words matter, why statements are phrased very carefully, but, I guess we can assume they have some data that may suggest these links. But then again, the science has had a long string of things that they've known, but they got wrong. It's the classic eggs are bad for you, and then they're good, and then they're bad, and only the yolk is bad. We all know that one. And we all know the butter is bad and margarine's good. and margarine or butter, they're, they're both they're both okay. And the margarine is really bad, but butter's fine. Artificial sweeteners are great, and they all give you cancer, and then some are bad for you, and and then they're fine, or maybe they're not. We don't really know. There's even some new studies, very early studies, that are suggesting lung cancer is not caused by smoking, which, like everything else, I would need some concrete proof to believe, but they're starting to study that. And the perfectly natural, harmless weed. It's causing anxiety, pain, and long-term heart issues. So should we give science, nutritional or environmental, the benefit of the doubt? No. Oh, I'll be honest, no. I'm becoming much more cynical toward the sciences that are consistently predicting our imminent doom unless, you know, we do something and do something right now. Bottom line, I start with the fact that they are lying sacks, and then I let them work me back from there if they can. Now everywhere you look, every search result says that PFAs are just little people and planet murderers you can even put in a search term saying that pfas aren't bad and you'll still get the results saying that they are bad now does that mean that they're bad well not necessarily it means that's the narrative that's being talked about the most so how long have pfas been around probably not very long right since we're discovering these issues and our scientists are just johnny on the spot right Well, I'd actually say, yes, they can be, as long as narrative and agenda don't cloud the results. Remember the poison Tylenol scare of 1982? You know, the Tylenol murders? Let me ask you, how many people died in that? Do you remember? We're talking across the entire country. How many people died? You think 10,000? 1,000? 100? Seven. Try seven. Seven people died, all in Chicago. Now, there were some copycats later, but the actual Tylenol murders was comprised of seven people dying in the Chicago area from capsules laced with potassium cyanide, and this took place over two days, September 28th and 29th of 1982. The combination of a nurse, investigators, and Johnson & Johnson determined the best thing to do. The bottles were traced back to a couple different lots. And so they shut down production. They recalled all the bottles. They stopped hospitals from using it, etc., etc. In the span of one week, seven deaths, all Tylenol was pulled and production was halted. Now, was that an overreaction? Oh, yeah. Most likely. Probably. Yeah. But there was no agenda, no narrative. Science did what it was supposed to do. And look how fast they moved. The first PFAs, Teflon, or PTFE, was invented in the 1930s, with usage starting in the 40s as nonstick coatings and later to waterproof fabrics. PFOs were invented and initially introduced in the 40s and were incorporated in stain and water-resistant products in the 50s, and then firefighting foam in the 60s. PFOAs were put into use in the mid-1950s as protective coatings, PFNAs in the 80s as resins, fluorotelomeres in the 80s as firefighting foams, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So 20 to 50 years later, depending on the product, some reduction in use started happening in the United States. See, after finding some trace amounts in the blood of those working in the chemical and manufacturing industry in the 70s, Then trace amounts in the blood of the population at large, they did animal testing, which, if it's done like most testing, they pumped more of this stuff into a rat than any human could ever absorb, inhale, or ingest in 10 lifetimes, and then they found some associations with various medical diagnoses. Well, then in the early 2000s, when did the U.S. start to reduce the use of these things again? It was in the 2000s. Environmental samples were taken, (laughs) and there was some detection of these forever chemicals around the globe, on the earth, like in the soil and the water, and some found in wildlife. Notice that there was about 30 years between the initial use in various products and discovering trace amounts in human blood, and nothing was done. And another 30 years, and it was found in the environment. And then the U.S. starts to reduce the use of these chemicals, and suddenly this is a massive health crisis for humans, and we better get rid of them. Now they actually might be very dangerous for humans, but can you understand my skepticism? See I'd like science to be science, I'd like data and statistics to speak for themselves, but we don't get that anymore. What we get is data and stats that are made exponentially more important as soon as Mother Earth is involved. Additionally, when quantitative absolutes are used, such as always, never, and forever, my skepticism is always heightened. I just never believe it. Wait, but seriously, I've been like this, and probably will be like this, forever. (laughs) Anyway, all kidding aside, the term forever chemicals is in itself a dramatic term used to elevate the fear and drive compliance. These aren't forever chemicals. There's literally no way to claim that. They've only been in production for about 80 years, so beyond 80 years max, we really don't know what they'll do. According to Dictionary.com, the term forever chemical was originated in the later 2010s. Well, that tells me that it was after 2015, so less than 10 years ago, the term forever chemicals was introduced to the American and the global population. Is anyone else feeling like you just stepped in a huge pile of oil-eating microbe droppings? Science just isn't science anymore. It's simply agenda adorned with mathematical model bling. And then you get hard-hitting investigative journalism like found on NBCNews.com from August of 2022, headline, Forever Chemicals Stay in the Air and Water Permanently. But scientists have found a new way to destroy them. (laughs) Um, Okay, so my child will always be a baby until she grows up. I will never stop blowing massive quantities of snot out of my nose until I get over my cold. I mean, you literally can't claim they'll be there forever and there's a way to destroy them at the same time. Uh, But here we are. So apparently the only known way to break down these chemicals that will outlive God himself, apparently, is to incinerate them at, 1,800 degrees American. So problem solved, right? Just incinerate them, at least as much as we can. You know, poof, not not forever anymore. But no, the article says we can't do that. That takes a lot of energy <laughs> and can still pollute the environment. <laughs> we can't have that now, can we? But by using a combination of sodium hydroxide or a common product, lye, which is used to make soap, and dimethyl sulfoxide, a chemical used to medicate bladder pain syndrome, so two chemicals that are basically harmless, at least they are for now until they hurt the earth, and then heat that mixture to about 250 degrees, the forever chemicals tuck their tail and run apparently. This is some new information. It cracks off a fluorine ion, which nobody really cares about, (laughs) yet, which apparently then unravels the entire molecule and it collapses into harmless byproducts. Then, right after revealing this treatment for forever chemicals, the author of this article says, quote, PFAs are nearly impossible to destroy because of their strong carbon fluorine bonds. No, they're not. They need lye and bladder meds and 250 degrees and poof. So, forever chemicals are forever, except when incinerated, and even less forever when mixed with harmless chemicals and less heat. These just don't seem as forever, as we're being led to believe. But Dan, you say, and please stop saying that, I'm working on it. No need to be cruel to me here. (laughs) This method will only work if we can do this with all soil and water and air and blood and everything. Otherwise, we're all doomed. Well, I mean, yes, except that, uh, except no, that doesn't appear to be exactly correct. See, a few months earlier... In 2022, according to news.ucr.edu, which is a news site for the University of California Riverside, headline, microbes can degrade the toughest PFAs. Oh, well, these must be super microbes or forever plus one microbes or maybe infinity times infinity microbes. The basic idea is that under anaerobic conditions, that's an environment absent of oxygen, a particular form of PFAs with a strong carbon-carbon double bond can have that bond broken, which is very difficult to do, by certain microbes. Now, that doesn't destroy the chemical, but the resultant chemical is much easier for other microbes in an oxygen environment to degrade into harmless byproducts. And after stating this, the authors still need you to know that those forever chemicals are in everything, which means they're in the tissues of animals and humans, quote, where they have been associated with some types of cancer, thyroid, and liver problems, and likely other, still poorly understood, health problems. Now, why was the last part of that sentence written? And likely, okay, okay still poorly understood, then why are we talking about these mysterious unnamed illnesses? Health problems. I mean, how generic can you get here? This narrative, this drama that they must push. It's simply amazing. The author then snaps back into reality and says, quote, microbes capable of doing this type of defluorination are not rare. Using activated sludge, microbial communities commonly used in wastewater treatment facilities to break down and remove organic matter, and in anaerobic condition, the researchers successfully repeated their earlier experiment with more structurally similar PFAs. Oh. Okay. So we we can just treat this stuff. But back to our TP article, apparently we're going to not only give ourselves cancer, I guess high butt cholesterol also, but we're going to contaminate the groundwater and the ground and then bugs, which will be eaten by other animals and on through the circle of life, eventually making it to our dinner plates, and then we're all dead, all because you wanted a clean, non-rashy backside. So what do we do? Well... Cheryl Crow had the answer 16 years ago in 2007 while she was on tour. See, she is a super concerned individual about the environment, or at least she was then. I haven't talked to her recently. And she, in her infinite, probably not high on the devil's lettuce wisdom <laughs> and lengthy bus trips, pondered what she could do to help. Quote, I have spent the better part of this tour trying to come up with easy ways for us all to become a part of the solution to global warming. Although my ideas are in the earliest stages of development, they are, in my mind, worth investigating, she writes. One of my favorites is in the area of conserving trees, which we heavily rely on for oxygen. I propose a limitation be put on how many squares of toilet paper can be used in any one sitting. We can make it work with only one square per restroom visit. Crow acknowledges there could be occasions when the one square limit might not suffice, such as on those pesky occasions where two to three could be required. She writes that when she presented the idea to her younger brother, he went a step further, suggesting that people could Just wash the one square out. (laughs) Oh, man. I had thoughts back when I first heard this back in 2007. I still have thoughts. You also have thoughts. We have the same thoughts. I guarantee it. No need to vocalize them here. I wonder how many times you can press the pesky situation button on the government mandated iris scan automated square dispenser and how many situations pesky or otherwise are you permitted in one day? And just think, in 2007, we hadn't really spread the fear porn of PFAs very far and wide yet. If Cheryl knew about that back then, I wonder what horrible ideas she would have had. So to save humanity from the forever chemicals that will never go away for all of eternity, unless, of course, they're treated or abundant existing microbes get a hold of them. Then they're just uh, here for a little while, chemicals. But still, to save the earth, I mean, to save humans, we need to ignore that these aren't forever at all. And quote, like microplastic contamination, it is most effective and efficient to prevent wastewater contamination by controlling the sources. Undoubtedly, they are effective substitutes for PFAs in making toilet paper and other consumers. Consumer products, And I, for one, am positive <laughs> those products will be better because what we know for sure is that everything we're doing, in the name of saving the planet from perceived issues, is just making life better. So we need to reduce and remove PFAs everywhere because, quote, if society fails to dramatically reduce these multiple PFAs exposure... We increase the likelihood of our children and wildlife facing serious risks. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Look, what we're finding over and over again is that uh, the Greenies hate all manufacturing, all chemicals, all everything, including humans. For the environmentalists, the idea is for humans to be phased out. We are the largest virus on the planet, and we've just come in and destroyed everything. Now, also per their beliefs, we evolved to this, but they literally believe that we over-evolved. We've gone too far. Evolution just screwed up, and we need to help it take another shot by getting rid of humans. But for everything they tell us we will just destroy humanity, or more importantly, the earth, for generations and generations to come, if not forever, we seem to discover that nature's got it. The solution has already been baked into the organisms or the processes of the earth, and I wonder how that could be. One question people have had forever has been something like, did God create the -the fill-in-the-blank virus or the poisonous something during the six days of creation? And the short answer is yes, nothing new has been created. The follow-up question is usually, why? Or what purpose did they serve? And I don't know. Nobody does. And we don't know because we don't know what exactly was created. The parent microbe or organism, spider, snake, virus, bacteria, or whatever, was absolutely created in the initial creation. Was it sin that activated the infecting agent? Was it microevolution where the whatever changed over time? Losing some genetic information, making it more dangerous? I don't know. But what we've got today is what we've got. And it seems like they were perfectly designed and not only adapted perfectly, but continue to adapt perfectly in order to address the discoveries, creations, breakthroughs, mistakes, and disasters man is responsible for. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. It's almost like God knows what we're going to do before we do it. But remember, God is a fantasy. So instead of looking at the evidence of how forever chemicals aren't forever at all, and how clearly designed and now naturally occurring organisms are capable of breaking these chemicals down, and will no doubt do so given time and concentration, will instead work once again under the belief that we're destroying the planet, and we're the only hope for the planet, and my Charmin ultra-strong, I-don't-require-a-prostate-exam-this-morning toilet paper, the only toilet paper anyone should purchase will be replaced with something that I won't want to talk about, and I'll thank you not to ask me why I have that look on my face. Currently in the United States, if you want to vote, you must be a U.S. citizen, although a number of Democrat locations are trying to allow illegal aliens to vote, hoping they can overwhelm the system and enact their socialist, un-American agenda. So far, the courts have said, uh, what do you think you're doing? You must be a resident of the state you're voting in, which in most cases is pretty easy to prove. You must be 18 years old, although there are some bona fide socialists in the Democrat Party that are advocating for 16-year-olds to vote, as they've been indoctrinating them in schools for years now, and polls consistently show that people tend to vote more left when they're young, and as they age and uh, grow in wisdom, they tend to shift to the right. And then if your state requires, you must be registered to vote. Now, some exceptions to the right to vote would be non-citizenship. I think that should kind of go without saying. Uh, Some felons, some mentally incapacitated. The rules vary somewhat by state. In the U.S., about 60% of eligible voters come out to vote during presidential election years and about 40% in the off years. It's kind of a sad statistic, to be honest. Of course, in 2022, people were so excited to vote for Joey Pantsful of Pudding that 66% of eligible voters came out to vote, including 147% of eligible Democrat voters and 37% of deceased voters. From what I've heard, those are unofficial numbers. Voting has always been considered to be a right and a privilege in the United States, and unless you don't meet the requirements, you can vote. Again, I know that those on the left feel that anyone with a darker skin shade is too stupid to be able to get an ID, too stupid to know how to use a computer, too stupid to be able to vote on the day or a week, or even in the month they're allowed to vote. Too stupid to be able to get their vote to the mailbox or to do it in person. So we have a bunch of leftists screeching about how things are unfair. You know, oppression, oppression. Again, it's nothing but flat-out lies, as that's all the Democrats really have to work with, just lies. And, uh, and racism. I like racism, as their views of the black population are unbelievably racist. I just don't know how anyone could be part of the Democrat Party... Uh, Or vote Democrat at all anymore. They're just really evil personified when you come right down to it. I can back that up. Now, if you look around the world, there are at least 22 nations that require their citizens to vote. I don't think that's a good idea either, as you can see the problem in this country with under and especially uninformed or clueless mouth-breathing voters. I've said this before, but my idea would be a basic constitutional civics and current issues type of test. A multiple choice test at the beginning of every ballot. Simple, I don't know, 20 question test. Then you vote. If you passed the test, your vote counts. If you didn't pass the test, your vote is discarded. You never know if your vote counted or not. The test itself would dissuade those voters that don't care enough, and the content of the test would weed out the mouth breathers uh, that shouldn't be voting in the first place. Now, is that fair? Um, Well, I mean, yeah, this is the direction in the future of our country. I kind of think it's more than fair, to be honest. Hey, before I forget, welcome back to the American Genesis. This is episode 31, part 13, in our look at the amendments to the Constitution now back to our show after the american revolution the constitution for the most part left voting eligibility requirements up to the states you can see that to some degree states still have the right to set some eligibility requirements on their own and then the cursory suing by the democrats because everything is always unfair for all time and all ways Generally, the right to vote was granted to white males who were property owners and or taxpayers. At this time, women were not allowed to own property. Don't yell at me. I'm just recounting history. That said, there were a few states that did allow blacks to vote. New Jersey allowed unmarried and widowed women to vote regardless of color, but married women in New Jersey were not allowed to own property, so they still couldn't vote. In 1791, newly admitted Vermont allowed all males to vote, regardless of color or property ownership. 1792, New Hampshire no longer required property ownership. Also in 1792, newly admitted Kentucky allowed all free men, regardless of color or property ownership, to vote. But most blacks could not vote in Kentucky as they were slaves, and then in short order, the right to vote was taken away from blacks, regardless of if they were free or not. And then also in 1792, Delaware removed ownership requirements but kept the taxpayer requirements. In 1798, Georgia removed taxpayer requirements, and the history continues. You can see that the eligibility requirements differed by state, but the default starting point was white, male, property owner, taxpayer. And then they adjusted from there. Now, disregarding the white and the male part— I'll be honest, I would not be opposed to requiring voters to be property owners and or taxpayers again today. The point in doing this was not to be discriminatory. It was to ensure that those that were voting actually had a productive stake in the country. They were literally the people that were funding the operation and defense of the country. The the makers, not the takers, the owners, if you would. Along those lines, if, if we were to go down that road again, I'd say that anyone that's being paid by the government, and we're talking about a welfare-type situation, or those that are employed by the government, wouldn't be allowed to vote either. Again, this is not to discriminate. This is because there's a built-in bias. Which party will give me the most money? You'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be, how many single-issue voters there are in this country with that one issue being, somebody better give me my money. And by my money, they mean my money, as I'm a taxpayer, which is where their money comes from. Now, this could get very convoluted, though, as when you think of how many public employees there are, state and federal, it would remove the right to vote from a massive percentage of the population. This is why... Personally, I'd advocate for the pre-ballot test. Young, old, black, white, male, female, rich, poor, etc. It would treat everyone the same. Hey, you want 16-year-olds to vote? Me too. You want 10-year-olds to vote? Let's do that. You put a test at the beginning of the ballot, I'd have no problem conceding that point. If they have a cursory understanding of the history, the current issues, the candidates, etc., then fine. Vote. Now back to the amendments. The last couple segments, we've discussed the first two of the three so called Reconstruction Era amendments. Amendment number 13 abolished slavery. This one freed the slaves across the country. It was sent to the states on January 31st, 1865, ratified by the states less than a year later on December 6th, 1865. Then a half year later, on June 13th, 1866, Amendment 14 was sent to the states. This one had a number of parts to it, but essentially it defined citizenship as including blacks and it granted equal rights to people regardless of color or previous status. This was ratified by the states in just over two years, on July 9th, 1868. Then we come to the 15th Amendment. This one was sent to the states on February 26th, 1869, about a half a year after the ratification of number 14, and in just under a year was ratified on February 3rd, 1870. It would be nearly 40 years before another amendment would be proposed. So what does the 15th Amendment say? Well, 15 like 14 is broken into sections, but only two sections at this time. Section 1 Quote, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And Section 2, quote, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So, as humans do, any time we're presented with rules, especially rules we don't like, we instantly look for loopholes. And this is what the Southern, former slave, former Confederate states were doing. I mean, whether you agree with them or not, you can totally understand their anger, their annoyance, their rebellion. I mean, slavery was not just about power and control. It was the key to their economy. They relied heavily on slave labor to make their huge plantations not only produce, but produce profitably. So that's now been taken away. Now they tried to break away from the rest of the United States and they got smacked down pretty hard. They were forced to ratify the 14th Amendment. And this was entirely the fault of those blacks in their viewpoint. So any possible way they could try to skirt the law, they were going to do it. Now, if you recall, the 14th Amendment had a fairly ingenious section in it that said that if a state were to deny a particular group the right to vote, then that state would lose a proportional amount of representation in the federal government. This should have been a deterrent, but it was actually taken the opposite way, as in each state could decide to deny blacks or Chinese in the West or whoever the right to vote and just take the hit in their representation. So the states still had their right to decide what they wanted to do. So back to the drawing board. After a number of iterations and proposals regarding literacy tests and foreign-born citizens, former Confederates, etc., the language was finally agreed upon in the very broad terms that I just read for the amendment. In addition to the removal of various groups, proposals for poll taxes, proposals for denying blacks the right to hold office, etc., all of that was removed, resulting in the text that we finally got. The vote in the House was pretty much along party lines, with 144 yeas, 44 nays, with 35 choosing not to vote. Not one Democrat supported this amendment to guarantee the right of blacks to vote. Let me say that one more time. Not a single Democrat voted for blacks to have the right to vote. And the reasoning was the same as it is today the democrats don't actually believe in democracy they don't like the constitutional system and they don't like to play a fair game bottom line they're liars and cheaters they knew the blacks would be more likely to vote for republicans because republican was the party that was fighting literally for their freedom and personhood democrats being the snakes they are though turned it around by devising how to make the black population slaves of the federal government giving them money indoctrinating them with ideas of oppression unfairness etc giving them stacks of cash removing expectations and slowly but surely the democrats turn the blacks from enemies to the most stable voter block that the democrats have so now the democrats fight tooth and nail to ensure all blacks can vote and vote multiple times even all built on lies and manipulation it would be impressive if it wasn't so evil. Now, in the Senate, the vote wasn't quite down party lines, but again, not one single Democrat crossed the aisle. There were 39 Republicans that voted yay, eight Democrats, and five Republicans voting nay, and 13 Republicans and one Democrat abstaining. Again, not a not a one, not a single Democrat in the Senate voted for blacks to have the right to vote. We, today, need to repeat these facts everywhere and every time we can. The Democrats are for oppression or for freedom, depending on what will benefit them the most at the time. They don't care about people, or the country, or the rule of law. They don't care about whites, or blacks, or anybody else. They care about themselves and their power. Democrats have always been evil. I'm sorry, they just have been. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the Republicans are pure as the driven snow either, just generally less evil than the Democrats. Today, I don't even know how someone could be a Democrat, and I don't believe you can be a Christian and a Democrat at the same time. If you're one, I don't think you can legitimately be the other. Now, if someone can show me how that works, I'd be interested in hearing the logic. I can't make the two work together. Now, the real test. Would three quarters of the states ratify this new amendment? Not only was this guaranteeing the blacks the right to vote, but the levers of influence the government pulled to force the former Confederate states to ratify the 14th Amendment were already pulled and no longer available to force the ratification of the 15th, at least in the case of most states. And then Section 2 of this amendment, just like Section 5 of the 14th, was basically a threat. You would be ratifying a threat. Either you do it because it's the law and you wish to comply with the law like you know is intended— or the Congress has the right to make a series of laws that will suck the power out of your state and force compliance under a heavy hand. Upon ratification, it was a do-it-voluntarily-or-else kind of law. Additionally, there was opposition from women's groups, since this still only applied to males, or more accurately, it didn't extend the right to vote to women specifically. That said, a number of the former Confederate states still had Republican governments imposed on them as part of Reconstruction, removing the rebel governments until new elections could take place, so those states, uh, they ratified the amendments quickly, as expected." For four remaining states that had not yet regained representation, Congress made the ratification of this amendment mandatory. Those states were Virginia, Mississippi, Texas, and Georgia. So, of course, they ratified it pretty quickly. The amendment was ratified in the first month, in fact, by 12 states, Nevada, West Virginia, North Carolina, Illinois, Louisiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, Maine, Massachusetts, Arkansas, South Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Then over the next year, the next 16 states needed for certification finally ratified it. Just as with the 14th Amendment, there were some stragglers that remained. Delaware ratified it in 1901. Oregon in uh, 1959. California in 1962. Maryland in 1973. Kentucky in 1976. And Tennessee as the Coupe de Grasse. 1997, they ratified the amendment giving blacks the right to vote. I mean, it didn't matter, as it was already passed, ratified, certified, and part of the law of the land, but the perception of that is, shall we say, suboptimal? The level of procrastination, however, I mean, that's, that's legendary. But regardless of the stragglers, the Constitution now had three certified Reconstruction Amendments, which, doesn't that seem kind of amazing, like the epitome of understatement? Let's just take a quick moment to think about what was done here. President Lincoln gave his Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. Slaves were free by law upon certification of the 13th Amendment just shy of three years later, and then in the next just four years, blacks, former slaves, were given citizenship rights, due process of law, equal protection, and equal treatment under the law, and the right to vote. Blacks went from enslavement and property to voting as free, full citizens of the United States in seven years. And in the middle of all that, we had one president assassinated and a war that took the lives of around 620,000 men, and we survived an attempted dissolution of a country that was only 80 years old. Although clearly not the same, on September 12, 1962, President Kennedy gave a speech in which he said, by the end of the decade, we would put a man on the moon. On July 20, 1969, just under seven years later, we put a man on the moon. This country can do some amazing things when we put our minds to it. We declared independence on July 4, 1776. Just over seven years later, the British surrendered and recognized the independence of the United States of America. Five years after that, we had a ratified constitution. In 1896, the Wright brothers took an interest in the concept of flight, looking at kites and what others had done with various levels of success with gliders. In 1900, they flew their first glider. In 1903, just seven years after flying piqued their interest, they made their first powered flight at Kitty Hawk. Again, seven years from interest to powered flight. In 1907, an airborne division of the armed forces was created, and in 1909, the military purchased its first airplane. But lest you think this kind of rapid progression is all for the better, Obergefell, for instance, was decided in favor of gay marriage in June of 2015. One of the warnings was the slippery slope argument, and we were severely reprimanded that love was love, and how dare we argue that silly, unfounded, slippery slope thing. Well, seven to eight years later, the Democrats are decrying efforts by the Republicans to stop demonically controlled adults—you know, parents, therapists, doctors, teachers—from mutilating children, pedophiles are no longer criminal perverts but misunderstood, minor-attracted persons, and Spain says sex with animals is fine as long as you don't injure them. And how long before that comes here? Remember, love is love. Although I believe in an absolute sovereign God, as R.C. Sproul says, not one maverick molecule exists in all of creation. Nothing happens on this earth that wasn't foreordained by God. The paradox or mystery of that is that man also has free will and freedom to choose. To that end, God has given us, mankind, amazing abilities. As in the days of the Tower of Babel, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Although this specific scenario was stated in the negative, the statement itself is or at least could be devoid of connotation positive or negative couldn't it maybe not i don't know i'm not a hebrew scholar but reading it in english it's really an open-ended emotionless statement of fact we've been designed with amazing capabilities when we work toward a coordinated end goal for good or for evil is our choice Back to the 15th Amendment. Obviously, we all know that the fight for equality and civil rights didn't end there. The wounds ran deep. The animosity, hatred, and evil didn't just go away. We know that for the next century, the battle for equality raged on, but our system of government doesn't necessarily lend itself to instant solutions, or at least it wasn't designed to do that specifically. As the Three-Fifths Clause was put in to give this nation a chance to do the right thing, given some time... I can't believe that the 13th through 15th amendments were certified and the Republicans that passed it brushed their hands together thinking, there, that problem's fixed. Guess I'll go have some tea. This was going to, and did, take a long time. Of course, as stated, the Democrats have now adopted inequality as one of their favorite party platforms. And just like Weekend at Bernie's, they've got ropes tied around the limbs, sunglasses on the face, and they drag this corpse with them everywhere. Because if they ever admit that they were the party of slavery back then, that they are the party that runs on anger generated from perceived inequalities and unfairness today that they are the party of absolute slavery today based on color, gender, sex, or just pick a category, not only would they collapse from a complete loss of support, but if the truth ever came out in full, they would be in grave danger. The anger of those that have been enslaved and used for decades would be overwhelming, as it should be, to be honest. Now, I come back to this point a lot, but the founders were incredibly smart, incredibly forward-thinking, and I fully believe that they were divinely inspired. They created an amazing document with the forethought and insight to say, yeah, but there's no way this thing is perfect. Better make a way to modify it when needed, or it'll just be disposed of, and who knows what they'll think of in the future. And that'll do it for this episode of the American Genesis. Next time, we'll discuss a dark day, an evil use of this process. But for now, let's admire the Founders, the Constitution, those brave enough at a period in our history to fight both politically and physically to end an evil, to right wrongs, and make even better and stronger the system we were given to start with. And let's thank God for His sovereignty in all of this, knowing that all things are exactly as they should be in the exact timing foreordained. And so with that, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Well, here we are again, week number nine, and I I do mean weak. <clears throat> Talking to a friend at work today, I made the astute Confucian-esque statement that self-discipline breeds self-discipline. <laughs> you can feel free to use that one if you'd like. Look, I'm sure I'm not alone in all of this. Uh, self-discipline is one of the hardest things for me, but as I've already known, and yet still shocks me every time, it's that... When you take control of an area of your life, it seems like it's easier to take control of other areas as well. Now, this logically seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? If you're putting out effort in order to accomplish a thing that doesn't come naturally, you'd think you'd have less energy and endurance to put into other areas, but it doesn't seem to work that way. Now, if I could just remember this lesson long-term, because it seems like after an unspecified period of time, I'm like, you know... Things have been going really well lately. Let's see if I can totally screw up pretty much everything. (laughs) Spoiler alert, I can and I have, but not yet this time. So let's get started. Regarding my weight loss. Well, as was some past weeks, not what I hoped, not quite my goal for the week, but not bad and a loss is a loss. So I'm down another 1.3 pounds from last week, which puts me at 194.4 pounds or exactly 20 pounds down over nine weeks. That equates to an average of 2.2 pounds per week and puts me six and a half pounds ahead of my goal. Now I can tell you, I feel better. I'm down a solid two inches on my scientifically calibrated belt. My balance feels better. Stairs don't frighten my heart and lungs like they did. I hate working out. I hate dieting. I always have and I guarantee that that will never ever change, but the effects are most definitely worth it. And this weekend, for the first time in quite a while, I did splurge a bit. A large bowl of, hmm, buttery, salty popcorn on Friday, although it did fit into my calorie bank, and a splurge of delicious candy on Sunday, which along with regular meals did put me over. But over the last week, I've averaged a net intake of about 1,350 calories per day, so I had room to satisfy cravings for that day. Back on the old broken-down wagon come Monday, though, ugh. Anyway, this one stays a solid green, another 10 to 12 weeks unless I hit a plateau, which is possible, and I should be right around that 175 range, which is somewhere around my goal, which is yet to be determined. I have to figure it out as I get closer. Now, oh, one other thing. All the lab work came back good, so no concerns, no meds, nothing special, which makes the doc happy. Just keep doing what you're doing, you know what to do. That's what he said. Okay, Reading. Hey, prepare to be proud of me, but don't do it because pride is a sin, sinner. I put in a solid effort this past week for two reasons, mainly. First, I needed to. I've been slacking enough, and enough is enough. So I decided to not play inane games on the phone or mindlessly surf the web while I had the World Baseball Classic on in the background. Instead, I turned the TV down real low. And i read while it kind of just hummed in the background a little bit and second someone recommended a book for me to read for a reason not just like you know hey this is a good book so i wanted to get my current book done so i could get on that one in addition i catch myself scrolling through the phone as i lay in the bed before i go to sleep at night but that's because i can do that mindlessly and the book i was working on was far from mindless so I picked up another book that's been on the shelf for a while that's still legit reading. We'll cover it when I get it done. It's not like a large children's board book or anything, you know, not a big picture book. It is actual legit reading, but it's more mindless. It's uh, it's easier reading. It's, it's kind of what I call a palate cleanser of a book. And so it doesn't require as much intense focus. So because of these two things, I was able to plow through 198 pages last week. That was a split of about 100 pages on both of the books, right? About an even split. So I've moved the goal from a light red back to a light green. I'm at 110.3% of my goal. That's midway through the month. But I would like to be at at least the same percent of goal at the end of March as I was at the end of February in order to call it a dark green That's going to require about another 120 pages read for the remainder of this month. That shouldn't be a problem, but you never know. So the book I've finished, I told you I would tell you about it. I've been working on this one for a while. It's entitled The Rape of the Mind. Great title, right? It's a book from 1956 by author Joost Mirlu. That's J-O-O-S-T M-E-E-R-L-O-O, which, I'll be honest, has to be one of the favorite names that I've ever heard. Uh, This is a book all on the psychology of brainwashing, mind control, mass hypnosis, totalitarianism, and the power of fear and terror, among other topics. He's a psychiatrist, or he was, he's long since passed, but he was a psychiatrist, and he was basing this book on what he called menticide that's his term it's along the lines of genocide basically the destruction of the mind it's based on the mass brainwashing of the nazi germany era and the korean conflict pow's now overall i would definitely recommend this book but it is deep so in no way is this for just anybody you have to want to read this or you'll never get through it it's really well written it's just deep Now, this is not a Christian book, so he does delve into some Freudian psychology about three-quarters of the way through. Not a lot, but some. And in my opinion, Freud was a fraud. Although I know that our psychiatric field is heavily based on Freud, I believe that's what's wrong with the field of psychiatry, personally. Now, I think that's the first time I've digressed in a goal update, so we should probably keep moving through my review of the book. The majority of this book has very good insights. He explains the techniques of the totalitarian dictator, both mental and physical, covering things like isolation, torture, drugging, as well as suggestion and propaganda. He speaks of the power of fear, the power of the masses, the demonization of the individual or the free thinker. He speaks of mass hypnosis, mass delusion, and mental contagion. The book was eye-opening, and I'd say that nearly the entire book is timeless, which leads me to... If I had to sum up this book in one thought, I would say it's amazing that the techniques used 80 years ago are the same techniques that are still being employed today. But the terrifying thing is that they are much more refined, much more subtle, and they have the luxury of advanced technology and social networks to incorporate the techniques today. So they are massively more effective over a much wider population. Now, I've said many times with the whole COVID thing, I knew that fear was a powerful emotion, I just had no idea it was this powerful. After reading this book, I now have a much better idea of why it was and is still so powerful. So, let's move on. These updates aren't supposed to be this long, my apologies. Next is Bible reading. Although I didn't hit as hard as I had the last few weeks, I've still increased my progress. Last week I was at 148.8% of my pace, and this week I'm at 153.8%. Again, this comes down to the weekend, but although I'd agree that we should be in the Bible every day, I'm a realist, and I know that I can't guarantee that I'll do anything every day, necessarily. Sometimes life happens, and you're just hanging on for the day, right? And to be honest, I think that's okay. The trick is to not let neglecting whatever the thing is become the habit. And that's not the case here. So that one stays at a dark green. And Finally, daily devotions. As I always say, you need to be doing your devotions every day no matter what. No excuses. (laughs) But that's where I am. Another week of hitting my morning devotions every day last week. So my pace versus my goal has moved from 112.4% to 115.1%. That stays a dark green. Now... The devotional I'm using, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again here. It's actually from Ligonier, which is the late R.C. Sproul's organization. They're part magazine, part monthly devotional called Table Talk Magazine. What I like about this is that it's not like a random devotion, random topic every day. This is expositional. This is verse-by-verse verse devotional in a book of the Bible. We just finished Second Corinthians, or I just finished, and then they move to Exodus next. Now, they do break in with a topic for a week from time to time, but overall, they just move through a book until they're done, and it's done maybe two to six verses at a time. So, every morning, you're picking up where you left off, and it creates a kind of continuity that, at least for me, is really appealing. That's part of the trick of making something a habit, right? Find what works for you that aids in your accomplishing your goal, and do that thing. Okay, I know this one went a little bit long. Hopefully, it was worth it. As always... Any comments, questions, concerns, let me know. And now I need to go work out. And nobody's happy about that. Bye.